welcome to Mustang Open Mic. The city of Mustang is highlighted, explored, and celebrated. A podcast discovering the vision of the city through inspiring conversation with Mustang leaders. And now your host, James Wall. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Mustang Open Mic, a podcast for Mustang about Mustang. Yes, this is a special edition of Mustang Open Mic, and we're thankful to the Chamber of Commerce for allowing us to record the legislative breakfast, which took place Tuesday morning, January 31st. Pastor Michael Staten from the First Baptist Church moderated the discussion. And on the panel, Representative Leslie Osborne, who was elected to represent House District 47 in 2008. Also, Representative John Paul Jordan, who was elected in 2014 to represent House District 43. And Senator Kyle Loveless, who was elected in 2012 to represent District 45 and Senator Lonnie Paxton, who was elected in 2016 to represent District 23. I know you will enjoy this discussion. I will have to warn everyone, the audio is really rough. We were not able to record from the equipment there at Town Center. So turn it up. Listen carefully as our distinguished legislators discuss Oklahoma and their priorities for 2017. We do appreciate all of you being here. This is such a great community where we've got just the privilege of having so many people care about what is going on in our city. We have so many people care about our schools and local businesses. And this event has come together because of all those entities working together, our schools, our businesses, our chamber of commerce, our city leadership. And we are so grateful for the role that each of you play in this. I want to say on a personal note, I've had the privilege of living here for uh, almost 17 years, and my life, my family has been blessed by, by each of those entities, by the schools here that do such an amazing job, by our city leadership who makes this uh, just a great place to live, by uh, our civic organizations, our, our police, fire department, uh, all the first responders here, the churches that work so well together here to uh, help serve the people of this community. Uh, it is what you do, and it is people just like you that make this such a special place. And our hope today in having these distinguished panelists here is that we can be more informed, and that we can learn more about what is going on, more about how we can be involved in it, and how we can make a difference together. So thank you for your care and taking time to be here. And for each of you on stage, thank you so much uh, for your time to be here today. We know that the jobs that you do are very difficult, and oftentimes I'm sure quite thankless, but I hope that today that you know from us that we do appreciate very much uh, what you do and, and your willingness to put your own name on the line, put your name on the ballot, and to serve the people, not only in this room, but, but in many other rooms like this that you get to meet with. So um, our desire today is we're going to take about the next 50 to 55 minutes and ask some questions. Let me just explain briefly how the format will work so everybody knows what we're trying to accomplish. We've got a number of questions, and they're going to be divided among several different categories. Each question is going to be directed toward one specific person on the panel. It's not our desire to have... All four of you feel like you need to respond to every question. So I'll direct it toward one specific person. I'll read the question, give you a chance to respond. 
after the response is over, if there is someone on the panel who has a difference of opinion or maybe sees it a different way, at that point we would love for any of you to jump in there and where there can be good discussion, good disagreement, healthy debate, please feel free to engage that way. We'll go through, get through as many questions as we can and uh, cover the different topics. We have Representative Leslie Osborne, Representative John Paul Jordan, Senator Kyle Loveless, Senator Lonnie Paxton. Would you please give them a round of applause? We appreciate you. questions uh, related to revenue growth. First one is directed toward Representative Osborne. With another large state budget deficit projected, do you think we are at a point that we raise revenue? If so, what would be your vision for solving these reoccurring deficits? In order to expand a revenue base, would you prefer an increase in income taxes, sales taxes, user fees, or reduction to the corporate tax exemptions, which of these also do you feel is the most likely action to be taken? Uh, so we started with the easy question today. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I'm the House Appropriations and Budget Chair this year, but I've been in the budget room for the last four years. And I can tell you that things have markedly changed in the nine years that I've been in the legislature. When I first came in and knocked doors, People were still talking about, let's make government smaller, let's make it more efficient. There's a lot of places we can cut with spending problem. And at that time, I think that may have been the case. But the first thing I did this summer when I started working in this office was pull the 10-year appropriated history from all of our state agencies. And 85% of those agencies have been cut on average 40% in the last 10 years. So the point is, is that all of these agencies are doing constitutionally or statutorily mandated functions that we have asked them to do. And at this point, they are at bare bones and doing what they need to. Now, a lot of those agencies probably had places to cut. And whether they wanted to do it or not, they had to find the efficiencies, they had to combine programs, they had to collaborate in public-private partnerships. At this point, I do not believe there's many places left to cut. And then we have four or five top agencies that are completely that just suck the money out of the budget. And there's nothing wrong with that, it's the most important ones, but public safety, education, healthcare, just growing costs because our population is growing. So the last three years when we've had a $650 million deficit, last year 1.3 billion, this year 868 million, we've gotten down to a point where we're every year robbing from Peter to pay Paul. And we're 49th in a lot of things and I think people are tired of it. And I think that it may be time to invest, and that's not that's not popular to say in my party. But I think what it is is at the end of the day, if we don't look at this not as Democrats and Republicans, but look at that as investing as Oklahomans and putting more into teacher salaries and putting more into infrastructure and putting more into public safety and mental health, I don't think we're doing the right thing anymore. So I don't think we'll see an income tax increase. I don't think that's popular. I think that this, I know the second of the session I'm going to run the cigarette tax bill, dollar fifty a pack. It will stop thirty six thousand Oklahoma students a year from starting. So first, look at it that way. Second way is the amount of money it brings in dedicated to health care will shore up for years to come and keep our rural hospitals open, health Medicaid provider rates, therapy caps that have put on things. 
and mental health spending, which we should double today because every dollar we put in it comes in down 10 times down the road of broken lives and saving money. So that's what I think we'll see. And then I think closer to the end of session when it's actual budget time, we may see something looking at potentially something like lifting the exemption of tax on services or looking at something like a small increase in the gas or diesel tax, which are 47 and 49. Anybody have a, a different opinion or, or just something in addition like to add to that? Anybody wants to speak for the grace of mankind? Lovelace for you. Internet shopping continues to grow and will continue to do so. In light of this trend, how can laws be enacted that would place the responsibility of collecting sales taxes due on the vendors instead of the consumers? And do you realistically feel there is anything that will happen in this regard in the near future? If so, what specific action do you anticipate? Sure, the uh, internet sales tax has been something in, in the change of in the last 15, 20 years, and the uh, owner of a family business that makes custom footwear you know, we're a brick and mortar business. However, if it wasn't for the internet, I mean, we do contracts all over the world because of that. And so, the problem becomes of collecting taxes, you know, where, and the problem, and the internet sales tax, is it's, it, it kind of tips the balance a little bit towards the federal problem. The federal government is the one, because of having to deal with all the different states, the federal government is the one that has to come up with a, a solution to that. There, there are several ways to do a compact between the states to collect that. And because right now, when you do that and you fill out your taxes, and we all are getting ready to do so for this coming year, you have to voluntarily put in what you've bought on the internet. Well, there's no way of enforcing that, and you have to basically do it on the honor system. And so that's something where it's a challenge both for the local governments, city of Mustang, state of Oklahoma but also for the federal government as well. So you have vendors like Amazon, who doesn't have a facility or a building here in Oklahoma, and, but yet they do business with them all the time. I buy stuff with them all the time, I'm sure you all do. So that's where the challenge rub is, how do we collect a tax when they don't actually reside here? There are efforts to move that, and we're getting closer and closer, but the, 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 sad, the sad answer is, we have to wait on the federal government to come up with a solution, which means, more than likely, it's not going to happen. Because, uh, because whether you think it is or not, it, it's not a new tax, but if you weren't paying it before, and you are now, you think it is a new tax. And I'm against taxes, buying new taxes by and large, so it's hard to explain to people, it's not a new tax, but you should have been paying it before. So it, it, it is a challenging uh, issue, but it's something that hopefully in the next few years, both the federal and the state government works on that. And just to add to that, I had a meeting with Tony Maston, head of the tax commission this week, and we had lit a fire under them this summer that this was not acceptable, that it was voluntary. We are in final negotiations with Amazon.com right now, and they are about 50% of the internet sales in the, uh, in the state. It's projected that they may sign those papers in the next month and start remitting, which would be about 50 million bucks. I'm going to jump in a little bit. On the internet sales tax, I know being elected to the state, you know, just back in November, and all of a sudden 
Representative Osborne and everybody else in leadership says now it's time to start raising taxes. So thanks, <laughs> But so when you look at, when I look at all the different sources of revenue for the state, you know, I, I'm thinking, well, what would be the easiest tax for me to support? And the internet sales tax for me is I, I live in Title I own property in Title that has commercial tenants. All those commercial tenants pay retail sales taxes. And they're competing with online retailers who don't pay that. If you look around our town, the same way that's here in Mustang, you look on the on the boards that businesses sponsor, the football field, the gym, the baseball fields, nowhere in there is Amazon on, on our football field. All of our local businesses are. That's the ones who make these towns work. And so, I, I, it, Senator Lewis is correct. A lot of this is on the federal side, but there are things on the state side we can be more aggressive in enforcing some of the things that's already there and doing things with compacts and, and starting to move forward with kind of being more aggressive. Some states have actually stepped a lot forward more than just Amazon. And so, this actually should have been done a long time ago. Just Beside the taxation side is fairness side. It's fair for local retailers that they're not, you know, eight or ten percent more expensive to start off the bat than they have on So I hope that's addressed very quickly. All right, we'll move for a few minutes to issues that relate to education. Uh, for Representative Jordan, do you support using public tax dollars to pay for the education of a student who attends a private religious school? So how would you guarantee? that students who are most in need, such as those in poverty, or students with the physical, social, and emotional challenges, would have equal access to the private religious schools, many of which cost several thousand dollars per year, and have very stringent admission policies. Okay, wow, that is a important question. Um, it, yeah, this is actually you know, quite a few. Um, you know, and, and I've always been actually a proponent of parental choice or school choice. Have been. Uh, my my take is this: the money should follow the child. You look at the way the our state funding formula has it set up. Um, you look at the school district here in Mustang. We Mustang gets about eighty five hundred dollars per student. Now Oklahoma City is getting fourteen thousand dollars per student. You've got some school districts around the state that are getting thirty thousand per student. So you're not looking at the money actually being attributed to the child. In order to get around some of the funding formula, I've been uh, a proponent of actually making sure that those dollars are actually getting placed with the actual child instead of it being pulled away and going through this odd funding formula that no one seems to understand. Lawsuits have actually been filed against it because of the disparagement. Um, and so that's where I would look at it. Now, in regard to the admin, the question about students with disabilities or ED um, or you know, those challenges following them. We already have a Lindsay Nicole Group scholarship. That's already put in place. Now with regard to you know, trying to have you know, either extra funds or balance out students that are in poverty, um, I like the idea of it being based on something you know, with regards to free reduced lunch. We've already had that set up. So that would be the way to make sure that the student, those students are already being evaluated, but we're not creating a new system for evaluation. Um, but when I look at it, you know, the argument that I see maybe this question trying to pose is, you know, against public school, religious school, I always look at it from this way. That's like debating Coke versus <coughs> Public schools are like Coke. Everyone knows it. I mean, heck, how many times have you been asked, hey, you want Coke? What kind of Dr. Pepper? That's what you know. It's something that's the name of right? public schools. Everyone knows it. They can compete. People know what, what they are. The majority of students are going to go to a public school. 
Um, and that's, I mean, that's where it's at. That's, you know, so kind of sidestepping that debate, that's not really the issue. I look at it and making sure the money is actually on the agenda. And I would, I'm just going to quickly rebut because this is one of the only things I think Representative Jordan and I don't agree on. I don't, I don't believe that we need to do SBSAs. I think it's very harmful to public schools. And that's not necessarily a Republican issue either, but I promise I'm still a Republican. Uh, in fact, you might want to pull all of us and go across what we think. But uh, my contention is, is that a small amount of that portion would follow the child, but it's not enough to pay the tuition. So most people that advocate for ESA say that they're trying to get like inner city kids that are in horrible situations and not a good school to a private school. But the tuition amount that you would get would not be enough to move that child there. Family is usually not going to have enough. There's not enough scholarships to move that child there. They're not going to have transportation. But Sean McDaniel is still going to have the same amount of fixed cost here in Mustang. So if we pull out this many kids, he's still going to have to pay the same amount of teachers and have the same amount of curriculum and pay the same amount of electric and gas bills. So I say, why aren't we putting more money into fixing and making our public school system the way it should be? Anyone else want to speak to that? Well, I'll, I'll mention it since I've been on the record as being more with that from Jordan. Is, um, and part of the reason is because uh, people sometimes uh, ask, well, should tax dollars go to a religious school? Well, the way that the system works and the way that we have designed the system is that's not the way it works. It goes to the parents. And to me, the parents make the ultimate decision. And empowering parents, studies have shown, and giving parents the tools to give their kids the best education possible uh, actually makes that kid learn more. And it, we, we do this in other parts of the government. When you get a, you know, when you get your uh, SNAP benefits or any other type of government benefits, you can take it to whatever vendor you want to. But except in education, you're stuck to wherever your wherever your zip code is. So in my mind, if there is an option, and I have a bill to do such, where you know a small percentage of students, if they want to, uh, per year, they can take their tax dollars and go somewhere else. I think it's a, a, a good alternative. I think giving parents the ability to do so, I think freedom works, and I think that making uh, the ability to have that option is something. I don't think, honestly, that most schools would be affected by it, because most schools, at least in my district, and a lot of them are doing very well. And I think that that's, it's just for the districts that are not doing well and the parents that, and kids that are struggling, these are the types of kids, whether they be uh, you know, less affluent or their school's not doing well, they have that option to do so. I just, you know, to me it's one of those issues where the ultimate decision needs to reside with the parents. I want to say education for Senator Paxton. Here in the past few years, the adequacy and effectiveness of public schools in the U.S. has been repeatedly questioned. There has been widespread discussion regarding school choice, privatization of public schools, education, savings accounts, multiple reforms that some have just been mentioned. Can you share personally your vision for what public education opportunities should be available to every student? What can you do and what do you see yourself trying to do to help that vision become reality? Sure. The, uh First thing I want to point out, because when I first started running for office, I really did not know the difference between school choice and bachelor's. And uh, you quickly get educated on that when you, when you start making a mistake in a form like this. And, 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 I, and I had done that. 
The, uh, so I think the people that may be confused by it, school choice is something I have strongly support, which says you have to pick your kids how you think that they should. School vouchers is the debate that gets into it when it's how should that be paid for. Should it be paid for by you or should it be paid for by the state through the voucher system? Um, during the campaign, and I would say it's all on that, I oppose the vouchers. I don't like the way, I, I haven't seen a voucher plan I've seen that I can actually follow and support. So as of now, I'm still opposing the vouchers. That's the conference center level so far I came in here. I said, well, I've got the question you and I are going to disagree on it. And we just very politely choose to, 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 to disagree on it. The, uh, the issue with the Lincoln Echo Henry Scholarship, that's an area I think that the voucher probably should be enhanced a little bit to help, especially the kids in the rural school, because as the Representative also talking about, vouchers don't help pay for transportation, doesn't pay for what they, what they actually need. So there's, there's a lot of areas that we can look at. There's probably some areas that even those of us who disagree on this panel here could probably find some common ground. So at the end of the day, is, is what's the best way to educate our kids? But I've got kids, I've, I have four children to in college to still public schools. I'm a believer in public schools, and I believe in local control of the schools. And uh, I think as we keep moving forward, these issues will continue to come up. I don't know how active it's going to be actually debated this year. I know Senator Lovelace, who had two or three bills regarding there's one in the House. I think there's a couple more in the years in the Senate. So I'm sure these are going to uh, pop up somewhere and we'll get to discuss them more. But the issue with, I think the first line of this question was that in the past few years, advocacy and effectiveness in public schools has been questioned. It's not the past few years, it's that public schools are okay. And so it's a government agency. We're always going to question We should always question Every agency should be questioned. Every government should be questioned. It's always run things efficiently. And I think that's my question of tax dollars. It's not that we don't need these four types of government, but are they being ran properly and And the schools I've been in, I've been in most every school in this district, um, I'm satisfied with what I'm seeing. That there are really good group of teachers, local school teachers, local school board, superintendents, and they're really good job of what they have. So as of today, uh, I get to see the voucher plan, I can really jump on the board. For Representative Osborne, in regard to teacher pay, last year this came up in, in this in this breakfast, and uh, one of the things that was stated there a year ago was that there really was no realistic way or chance that something was going to be done in last year's session to address teacher pay. Question is for for this year: Are there any steps you anticipate being taken during this legislative session uh, that would fund a permanent teacher pay raise? What do you think are the most likely actions that would take place? This session and the very near future to come. Another tough question. Um, we uh, in the House Caucus, the Republican Caucus, had our meeting this summer and um, actually this fall, and decided what would be our priorities. And our first priority was teacher pay raise because we thought it was a mandate on the ballot last year that people supported the teacher pay raise, but they didn't support the way it was written for the state ballot. They didn't support it being on sales tax because that would have given us the highest sales tax in the nation, which is not a good thing to have. It is a regressive tax. The other thing they did, I think a lot of people did not support how much we're going to career tech and higher ed. And that I think if it had just been for teachers, I, I think it would have passed. So that being said, there was a strong mandate from voters of Oklahoma that we expect to see something done on teacher pay raises. Now, that comes to the conundrum of we live in a balanced budget state, which is a good thing. That's why we're not the problems that the federal government's in, or California, or, or Chicago, or these places that can't meet their pensions and they can't do these things because they're in such debt. But it also makes it where we have to find a way to pay for it. So when I go back to it, I said how like 85% of our 70 appropriated agencies have been cut 40%. Do you want me to uh, pay for the teacher pay raise by cutting them another 25%? Because then we aren't going to have any new roads and bridges or have anything fixed. 
and then we're not going to have, uh, we're going to have less troopers on the road, and those types of things. Or is it time to invest? And this is where you have to look at overall, we are one of the lowest tax burden states in the nation. So, this is where you have to look. All of our contiguous states tax services. So you go into a Starbucks and you take, pay $10 for a cup of coffee, and you pay taxes on it. You go next door and get a haircut, and you don't pay taxes on it. So, I mean, I'm just saying, these are the kind of things that we need to philosophically think about. Are we willing to do a few of these things to get more funding to mental health, to get more to a teacher pay rate? So in the House, we propose when it would be the vehicle that goes through, uh, Representative Michael Rogers plans a $6,000 teacher pay rate. When you figure cost of living in, this will put our teachers at about 35th in the nation. That's a lot better than 49. And it, and it may not be enough, but let's start. Baby steps. We can't do everything overnight. Because a, every $1,000 costs us $55 million a year. So think about that. It's about a, bill, a quarter of a billion to pay for a $6,000 teacher pay rates. But we want to do it in a three-year stepped-in plan. 1000 the first year, 2000 the second, 3000 the third. And to go across the board for $6,000 teacher pay rates. But that being said, if I don't get something through like the cigarette tax, shore up all the dollars that are being sucked into the vacuum of mental health, Department of Human Services and Healthcare Authority is going to be real hard to fund that. So I'm saying it's time for us to at least consider, are you willing to invest a little more to do these things because we have to constitutionally mandate it to balance the budget. Our plan is to do that, but we're going to have to ask for you to be supportive if we think it's time to give a little bit more to the how would How would that take place that, that comes up in this session? You mentioned it would be tied perhaps to cigarette tax if that would work. Logistically, how would that come to be? Logistically, the cigarette tax would not pay for it, but what it would do is shore up the, amount, the uh, agencies that are kind of sucking so much out of the budget. That would be done first, stipulated only for healthcare dollars. Then as we go through the session, we will know from that, if we pass that, how much is freed up for other things. So because if you notice, Sayer Hospital closed this year, Atoka Hospital in bankruptcy, Lonnie's been on, on the board of the Chickasha Hospital. Our, our rural hospitals are in dire straits. So when you look at that, that's what we've got. When you shore that up, then I've got the rest of the session for us to go and get the teacher pay raise through. But then we have to come together as a caucus on the Republican and Democrats on the House and Senate side and say, how are we going to pay for it? Would they separate You want to speak to that and what you you anticipated taking place this session? Well, I think that, uh, I mean, and Person Hawes was right that the mandate came from the people, and we all heard it both through the teacher rallies and we heard it all through the campaigns. And, and that was one of the biggest issues when dealing with education was that our teachers uh, need to be paid for. I'm of the mindset, I don't like across the board uh, pay raises. I would like to empower superintendents and principals to pick, you know, STEM teachers, certain teachers that. Because as a 20-year teacher walking in, you get the same pay raise as a person who's just been there two years. I don't know that that's necessarily fair, and I don't know that in any other industry, and I know that in my business, I reward the good employees, and then more, and those that aren't, I don't give them as high pay raise or whatever. So in my mind, I'm a, not necessarily a big fan of across-the-board pay raise. However, if that's the plan, and that's the way of moving forward, and it's tiered in like the plan coming out of the house is more than likely that's probably what's uh, what will probably be on the board and get voted on. And I'd, I'd be supportive of that because I think it, it is necessary. I just don't like how it's done, but I'm not going to uh, vote no against it just because I'm not a, a fan of it. 
But that being said, um, I think that something we're really discussing teacher pay that needs to be included just real quickly is we're the only state in the country, according to the U.S. Department of Education, that includes their health care costs and, and also their uh, retirement. So those are not income. That, those are not income things. But those are things that the state pays for. And think about all the costs we've been talking that's been expanding. Well, health care is a part of that. And we've been taking care of that. And that's something that, as a Republican House and Senate, the last four or five years, when premiums have gone up 50, 60, 70 percent, the state has incurred that. And so that's something where if we hadn't have done that, which a lot of states have, <laughs> we could have given a pay raise four or five years ago. So that's the issue where I want to actually give some perspective of, yes, it needs to be addressed, but we need to have the entire picture as well. I know one of the uh, things we're talking about with pay raise sure that I think one of the discussions that I've had with several members is actually just to make sure that the, the money that goes towards future papers actually goes towards future papers. A lot of times what happens is that money gets put into the common debt and it gets pulled out for things like what some of the world is talking about with these insurance costs or things like that. But actually make, figuring out a mechanism to ensure that the money actually gets into the hands of the teachers instead of it being pulled out and saying, okay, we're going to pay we took this money and we had to use it for the X, Y, and Z instead. Um, that's one of the things where I've seen in the past with the short side. We're shortchanged with the idea that we're going to go to increase the budget for the Department of Ed in order to give money to the hands of teachers and then bring it back and say, we're going to get I'll hit it real briefly. And just for to my wife is a school teacher, so I've got a little bit of a vested interest in this. But you know, the, the one thing that should be posted all around the Capitol, probably in this room, is a big red nine hundred million. And that means that we're starting off not even we're starting off nine hundred million dollars an hour. And so it is going to be a deal. We just can't say let's approve future pay raises to make it happen. I think the, the revenue source that we're going to come up with is going to have to be diverse. It's going to have to be creative. Um, there's a legislator out there that has a bill that's going to uh, that would divert money from the PSAP fund and put it into uh, rural healthcare. And so I'm saying that's something that's going to all out. I haven't actually read this bill, I'm just talking about it. But there's all sorts of bills that would help uh, sort the state budget, but we have to actually fulfill a nine hundred million dollars before we actually start adding to it. So there's gonna be there's gonna be a, it, it is a big challenge. And Representative um, Oliver, the chair of the appropriations committee for the house, has a huge job in this. And so uh, I think when we move forward with this, I mean probably the, the bill coming out of the house would be the most reasonable bill because it's probably not with just a thousand dollar pay raise. But I mean, somebody said that's not enough. I agree it's not enough. Talking to teachers that I know that my wife's friends, talking to her, I know it's not enough. I know teachers that have left the profession to do it under jobs that I would never thought would handle what that teacher does. So it is a big issue, so is the budget, and that's what we're going to do. That's what we're going to do with that. Real quickly before you off education, understand there's a lot of different vehicles that could be used and different things that can be tied together. Just down the line real briefly, um, we meet back together here this time next year. Is your anticipation that something will have happened and then passed the teacher pay raise? Just personal opinion, if, if it will have happened. Yeah, I'll just look real quickly. There's 13 new senators in the Oklahoma State Senate, and uh, we had our own little meetings and we visited. And one of the questions that was asked in that, that meeting was, what's the one thing that you cannot accomplish to go back and pay your dollars? And 13 of 13 new senators said, 
So I do believe we'll come back with something that has happened in a positive way. Um, to answer your question, coming back next year, I would be surprised if there's not something that's passed. Yeah, I think something's going to pass. Um, how it's funded, and is it a one-time deal or a three-year deal, uh, I think that'll be the question, but I do think something's going to pass. Agreed, I think something's going to Okay, thank you, appreciate that. Moving for a few moments to issues that affect the city and local businesses. This one will be for anyone on the panel who would like to address it. President Trump and the U.S. Congress appear to be prepared to repeal and replace the Affordable Care Act. While we lack the specifics of a replacement plan, what change do you anticipate and how will these changes affect Oklahomans? Do you anticipate these changes will result in Oklahoma being more willing to accept some of the federal funding for health care that we've turned down in recent years? Will these anticipated changes influence Oklahoma legislature's actions in 2017? You know, in regards to this question, I think uh, what we're going to see first off, you know, talking to some of our congressmen and some of the U.S. senators, um, is that there's some plans in place with the repeal in place. Right now, we're working on the repeals. Um, and what I look at seeing happen with you know, Obamacare is first off, bringing back and some folks are going to lose their insurance. And the majority of them are going to be because they don't have to buy insurance. Because that mandate that you have to pay for insurance or you have to get it is going to be taken off. And so that's where some folks are going to be losing their insurance because they don't have to get it. Um, the second thing that you're going to be looking at though, is the idea of oh, is Oklahoma going to start accepting more federal dollars and more federal funds? I would actually say probably so, because I think the strings attached to those federal dollars are going to change. That was always a big, you know, that was always the biggest concern that I think the legislature had to say was what are the mandates and what are the requirements for us to accept this federal funding? Um, those are going to change because you have a completely different administration. I mean, if we haven't seen the last week, we have a completely different presidency in the way that you know things are being done and how quickly. There's a transition going on. This is uh, when we're looking at President Trump and what he was doing. This is probably the quickest transition from one mentality of federal government to another mentality of federal government that our country has ever had. Um, well, probably since FDR took office. Uh, and so that's why I'm looking at it with the aspect of Obamacare and what we're going to you know, how, how things are going to change. Um, unfortunately, when Obamacare went into, went into effect, one of the problems that we had with it was it took out a lot of your small insurance providers because they couldn't compete. They're competing against the federal system. And so they're no longer available for individuals to actually get competitive away from the insurance. And that's going to take some time to bring that market back. So that's why I see, um, you know, as we're going moving forward with the aspect of health insurance and coverage for individual performance, is that we're going to have a transition for allowing for the market to bounce back and also for um, the lack of some of the government funding of healthcare. I'll jump with that real quick. I think the answer is actually yes, it's going to change. I think one of the first things you're going to see with the repeal is going to be in the Medicaid portion where it's going to be sent back to the states in the block grant rather than just the <laughs> board talked about. And I think the state will jump on that very, very quick because that was the biggest, the biggest obstacle. There was a plan last year that would have been a reasonable plan. It was called Medicaid rebalancing that, that really would help us out. Um, that didn't pass. But I think if this thing gets to do, especially with, with President Trump, I think if, if Hillary 
don't think it would have cost me money for students to be in there. It probably was. But with President Trump, it changes everything. It becomes like a block dance, and the money will not be received in the will. And if that happens, it will not affect this budget year or the next budget year. I, I think that's one of the first things that broke out. I mean, I've talked to a few people in the hospital, the hospital administrations and the administrators of hospitals, and, and that's what we think is going to happen. That's going to be the availability of it. And if it does, that will take a lot of pressure off the state budget from what we're what we're seeing So I hope what I'm saying is correct. That's the indication that I'm getting, and that will really help us stay out. Thank you. Senator Lopez, we've had some talk already today about the possible raise of the cigarette tax by $1.50 per pack. Do you personally support uh, that proposal? Do you support that being uh, new revenue for health care? Do you believe that will get done, or do you have an alternative idea of how you feel that should take place? Well, when it comes to cigarette tax, I've, it, this is one of those, let me use the analogy of if there were revenue and things to bring in revenues we want to I don't know that I'm to the point of supporting it yet. I'm still studying it because the mindset that I've had is, for, and they call it a sin tax for a reason. You, you tax something. You tax something to reflect behavior. You're trying to get kids to get off of smoking. But if they're not smoking, they're not buying cigarettes. Therefore, tax money's not coming in. So we make an obligation on the revenue coming in on the downward trend of them not smoking. So Logically, I have a problem with it. I think that I know that earmarking towards healthcare will be beneficial, and earmarking towards uh, and will raising studies have shown, and you know, Oklahoma just recently got some good publicity that we have our children smoking are left in the state nationwide, and a lot of it's due to TSAT's efforts and others, and a lot of it is because our cigarette taxes that keep going up. And another problem also with raising cigarette taxes is. We have a lot of crimes in our in our state. They sell they sell cigarettes. They don't have to charge that. So that's a problem where you're going to have an unfair marketplace where they can just go to Shawnee or wherever they sell cigarettes and get them for less. So at that point, is it really the most effective way to, to fund government? I don't know that it is, but I don't know that any. The, the second part of the question was, do I know an alternative? No, I don't. But uh, raising revenue for healthcare or whatever you be using it for. Well, at this point, I'm still studying the issue. In the past, I voted no uh, on cigarette taxes, but it's one of those things where I'm going to have to look at this the, the bill coming out in the next couple of weeks more uh, before. You want to speak on a different side of that? All right, for Senator Paxton. Concerning the Real ID Act, what can we expect to happen in order to bring Oklahoma into compliance with the Real ID Act? How would local businesses be affected by this? Your thoughts on it? I'm going to really hit this, and I'm going to punt this over to Representative Austin since he's actually the bill that is in the House. Um, but I'll just give you a real quick. This, this is one of those I've kind of studied since I became a senator. I had a, I had a gentleman stop by in my office a couple weeks ago, and he was extremely concerned with, with this. And he's actually a person that, when they started requiring fingerprints for the driver's license, gave him his driver's license. He gets around the city on the right street on the sidewalks. Because he's, his, his question to me was, he goes, I've never violated this law, I'm not a criminal, it's not the government's business, what my fingerprints are, what my official ID is. That's how he got I feel this is 2017, in the modern world, you know, things are different than what they, than what they used to be. 
and he was he was very courteous. We disagreed on this issue, um, and I told him the issue that I've already seen that's been coming out of the house is one where if you like your current ID, you can keep it. Sounds like healthcare. But if you like your current ID, you can keep it. Unless you're my mom, but, but if you want the compliant ID, that's going to be available to you. Um, and so that's what, with water coming out of the house, is something that I'm, I'm going to support. And uh, um, but I said, if you don't want it, you don't have to take it. Let's Yes, I'm running this bill the first week of session. We've had multiple citizens across the state and all districts talk about this. Because if you do not have a real ID by January of 18, later from now, you will not be able to plan the commercial flight. And you know, real ID came about after 911. Homeland Security came out and said these people had licenses and they forged papers. It was so easy to do. This was for safety for America. And there were a lot of people in the House and Senate at the time that thought this would be a way for the federal government to have all of their information. But I'm just going to be honest with you, if you have a Pike Pass or One Star or a cell phone or a laptop, they probably already know who you are. You know, I mean, I just, it's, it's reality. I don't like it. Did anyone ever see the movie Enemy of the State? You know, it's the first time I ever thought about how trackable we are. But at the end of the day, I think that the majority of our 3.8 million citizens believe that we would like to be able to get onto a federal base. We would like to be able to go to things like NCAA ball games. Those types of things would be affected. You could not go to a federal courthouse and you would not be able to fly on a commercial flight without one. Over half the states have implemented them. But what we're going to do is what a few of those states did with citizens that had concerns to do a bifurcated system. Which means if you do not want a real ID, you will be able to get the same license you've always had. Just know that you won't be able to do the things we just mentioned. But if you do want a real ID, you will be able to get one and have all those things happen. So what we've done is set up a dual plan that will be implemented through the Department of uh, Public Safety and your local tag agents. And we hope to have those rolled down. We've already been guaranteed an extension if the governor will sign that in June. And then as soon as we can implement it, we hope that by <coughs> June, First ones will start rolling out the state, but they guaranteed us that extension if we want to get it signed. And we've got broad support in the House, Senate, and Governor's Office for that. All right. Jordan, this question concerns public safety districts, police, fire, EMS, and the housing, all items that can be considered for public safety districts. This will allow municipality to create a public safety district to collect funds from property taxes to be used for operational costs. Currently, Oklahoma is the only state in our nation that does not allow this to occur. Do you support the ability for cities and towns to ask their voters for millage to create public safety districts within their municipal boundaries? Okay, uh, long question, short answer. Um, I've always been a kind of you know, local control, always the ability for a city, municipality, county, uh, school district to be able to ask their constituents. Um, if they want to increase knowledge, they want to increase taxes and sales tax or whatnot, they should be allowed to do that. Um, actually, I, I like this idea, especially considering the fact that we have, um, well, we're here in Mustang proper, you have that area that I call Mutant City, which is in between Mustang and Yukon, the open city limits area, um, where there is a need for more law enforcement, there is a need for uh, fire safety and, and safety. And so having that uh, just available for that area and those areas around up in the city that where they've extended themselves, um, I actually like that idea. Who else has to speak to that one? 
All right, this question is for anyone who would like to address it regarding education again. Results of national and state surveys indicate businesses are not satisfied with the skills of our students upon graduation. Also, university remediation rates continue to be high. How do you believe that we can meet this challenge of better preparing all students for post-secondary success at the university level or as part of the workforce? I'll take this from the start. Uh, first off, I think that uh, a lot of times when you talk about education and you get things like charter schools and uh, ESAs and vouchers involved, sometimes you get painted as you're against uh, public education. First and foremost, I've been, I'm a product of public education. Uh, and something that I, I send my kids to. So, and something that I believe truly that the way that we're going to move forward as a state is a good quality public education system. An excellent quality public education system. To me, uh, we have... In a lot of areas across our state, we just have too much government. We have 525 school districts. We have uh, too much money going to the wrong places. In my mind, we need to systematically revamp our system to where uh, children and schools and uh, principals, those on the ground are getting the majority uh, of the funding. And it's not wrapped up into a lot of things that, that not necessarily, that aren't necessarily bad, but it's better we can use, use the money elsewhere. I think, and we've seen studies, we've seen the way that our system works now is you have a good chunk, a third to 40% of our, those going on to public or going on to higher education have to take remediation. That's unacceptable to me. To me, that, that shows that something is not working properly. It's not the system's fault. It's not the student's fault. Something is not working. And it's something that we have to look at systematically from uh, common education to career tech to higher ed. We have students who don't want to go to college, but yet if they, if they go for a year and a half to be certified at a career tech, can graduate and be certified as a you know, skilled laborer and make $50,000, $60,000 at a job. And to me, that is, if you would have told me that in high school, that's probably what I would have done. That would, and it's something where we, need to have a complete systematic approach to where, and a long-term vision, uh, that's something also that we haven't seen that we need to. In, o in transportation, the ODOT has the eight-year plan, the county transportation has a five-year plan. We need something like that in education to say, this is where we're going to go, this is how we're going to fund it, this is how uh, we want our scores to be, this is where we want to be. Metrics to where we can see, as a populated state, a populated state, We've done good, that we've invested well. Just, we've seen when you invest in something, the rewards show. And so it's something to me that we need to look at systematically to make it from, to take us from most of the rankings academically. We've, been, we've seen the ACT ranking regionally in other ways. We're doing better than you would expect, but all we hear is that funding is so low. We're doing very well ranking-wise on test scores, but we could be doing so much better if we, if we did it in a better way. Um, this is something I'd like to give a shout out to Mustang Schools on, and I hope you all realize what a wonderful school system we've got in our community. And we want to the paper this week because I wrote an op-ed in support of our school bond issue because we need to continue supporting our schools. 
Um, so I, what I would like to say is I had a really good conversation with Sean McDaniel this summer, something they're doing, and a lot of what we're hearing about is workforce credit. In the past, counselors would you know kind of encourage kids to take the ACT, but they really didn't dig in as to what their path should be. So we see a real push right now. And what they're doing in Mustang School is really encouraging STEM jobs. One of the tax credits we have that is really working and showing return on investment is the aerospace tax credit. We have phenomenally diversified our economy. We got Boeing to shut down their Kansas facility and move all those jobs here. Boeing has put great jobs here for two tracks. For the kids that are going into engineering at OU and OSU, for the first time ever at OSU, 50% of the enrollment is women, which is really interesting. It always was a male-dominated field. And then we also have a track for kids that want to go to career tech, especially trained in STEM, and get very good-paying jobs in these as well. And if you look around all of our BRAC facilities, like at Fort Sill and Elgin, around Vance and all these places, there's huge amounts of jobs that have come in. Nordam is one of the biggest employers of aerospace in the nation based in Tulsa. They doubled their, their capacity. All of these are great, high-paying jobs in our state, but we don't hear about that. We always hear, why aren't we diversifying out of oil and gas? Why we are? Okay, so one of the things that Mustang Schools is doing is getting these kids in junior high and getting them excited about STEM, having somebody come in like a John Glenn and talk to them about NASA, talking to them about these kind of things. Then on the other hand, we've got people like Nordam that really need new workers. So we've got a meeting set at the Capitol in a few weeks because uh, President McDaniel here has been a superintendent. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't want to scare you. Guys. But he's been a real innovative thinker on the school end. Marcy Mack, who is running Career Tech, is interested. And then I've got Nordam, that's one of our biggest aerospace. We're going to have a collaborative meeting at Capital and see if we can use this as a pilot project in, in, in a, where counselors would actually track kids in junior high and try to get them into these where they aren't just thinking they can have a menial job. Look, if you'll put a little more in and go into the career tech system or with Jack Bryan over at Redlands into a two-year association as associate's degree, we can get you and track you into these kind of things. I think that's the kind of thing. These public-private partnerships where you reach down into the schools and get them excited Junior high age, and we're doing it right here in Mustang, and I think it's exciting. All right, thank you. Last question for this one, if we would, we'll start with Rosen Osborne. We'll finish with this. Pizza, we'll take just a minute or two in summary. As you look toward 2017 legislative session and the current landscape of the state of Oklahoma, what most encourages you? We know we have lots of challenges, lots of deficits and difficult decisions to make, but what are one or two things that you feel best about our state at this time? Well, first of all, I know that we've talked kind of discouraging about, the, about you know, the, the money. But let, first of all, I want you to think about maps. Does everybody remember what Oklahoma City used to look like 10 years ago? Without the thunder, without Bricktown, we were a dying city. So Ron North and Kirk Humphreys and people said, I think it's time for us to invest. So when I say that, don't think that I'm saying we aren't still looking at every agency for efficiency, that we are not still trying to find any area that we can consolidate services and do things. But I just want you to say, I think that it's time that people are realizing there's a certain amount of core services we may not be needing, 
and it may be time to do something like maps on the statewide level. But it doesn't mean that we don't still have our conservative values and want to do things right and streamlined. Second of all, we've got great leadership. We've had, I would say, fairly weak leadership in the House and the Senate and the Executive Branch for the last few years. We have a new speaker from Atoka, Charles McCall, longtime community banker, great man, been out in the business, creating jobs. On the Senate side, Mike Schultz from Altus. He's a, a cotton farmer. He's been out in the real world, paying taxes, creating jobs. These guys get it. We have world influence, which is really good for places like our district. Because a lot of times the people that live in Oklahoma City and Tulsa don't realize there's 75 other counties out there. But from the rural perspective, we see that it takes all of us because we go to the city for everything. So what I'm saying is we've got strong leadership. We have ideas about getting things like a teacher pay raise and investing, but still at the same time working on making sure we're doing it the right way. And then second of all, I see a push to maybe get away, and I'm a big proponent of this from all the social issue bills, and focus on what's important. So you're going to see a lot of those files. I don't think you're going to see a lot of them ever get heard in committee because we don't have time to focus all day on a lot of these social issues because we need to be focusing on jobs and on health care and on public safety and on education and getting the resources where they need to. This is a, a question that I, I put a little bit of thought into, but it was really simple because the things that I'm most positive about and most looking for, you know, that gives me hope is you all, people that are here, people that came up their breakfast on a Tuesday morning to come here for politicians, people that are involved, people that uh, get engaged, the people who hold on, expect us to lead. And I think we've got new, like the first model mission, new leadership in the House and Senate. And that really does make a difference because you now have a new budget chair of House and Senate we bring a whole new perspective to the to the table. What that means to us is that the creative the creative oil and the engine that that drives us as a state keeps keeps us going. And so I, I truly believe that most people agree. I, there are more things that we agree on than we disagree on, but we spend a lot of our time that we disagree on. Well, now's the time. Yes, it's important to disagree. We disagree, you know, several times on the panel today on different issues. But I think putting our state's interests first is the thing that makes me think it's going to be better. You know, last year at this point, you know, it was $1.3 billion shortfall. You know, you felt a weight in the capital. This year, it's it's not it's not great, but it's a, it's a lesser budget shortfall. But there's a whole new energy. There's 30 new House members. There's 13 or so new, new senators. I truly believe that our better days are ahead of us, and I, and I think that as long as people, you know, continue to go to work, continue to go to school, continue to go to church, we can, we as a state will thrive. And I think that uh, that's what makes me think that uh, we're going to be better this session as well as down the road because both new speaker and new pro tem have both said. Okay, what do we want to accomplish this year? But more importantly, what track do we want to be 5, 10, 20 years down the road? Which honestly has not happened, and, and it's setting us up for a path for two years from now, a new governor. Well, in two years, a new governor at the, at the helm of the ship or whatever will make a world of difference. And I think it's something that, it, it is a long-term thing. I got elected for four years just in last November or whatever. 
you know, if I'm honored to serve out the term after that, I'll do that as well. But to me, this is something that the people that people getting involved, that's what I'm that's what I think helps drive this team. You know, I have uh, I was always that weird kid following government and you know, real heroes. And, you know, I'm looking at the this legislative session from the state of state and realize first off, you know what we've we've got a situation on our hands that you know it's a tough situation. But one of the things that encourages me is the fact that we're no longer in the mentality of we're going to keep doing things the way we've always been doing it because that's how we've always done it. You know, there's the old story of the fact that you know, there was a lady that she was cooking the turkey and she called her mom and said, Well, what do I need to do? And mom said, Well, you cut the top off. Well, why don't you cut the top off? Well, that's how your grandmother talked. Okay, well, they called grandma and asked her, Why do you cut the top off the turkey? Well, I don't know, that's how my mom talked. So they go find great grandmother. Great grandmother's like, Well, that's because my oven wasn't big enough to fit the turkey in, so I just had to cut the top off <coughs> and the side. And that, you know, that's how we've been as a state for, you know, almost 100 years, is that we kept doing things the same way because at one point we needed to. And that's just the same way we've always been doing it. We've never changed up. Um, one of the things that excites me, and I, I look positively towards the future, is the fact that we now have a mindset of, okay, we need to start changing the way we do this. Um, you look at this oil downturn, it was not as bad as what happened in the 1980s. In the 80s, um, you know, anyone who taught would realize that the legislature would have debt in the future retirement. That money, I, to my knowledge, was never even really paid back. That money was just taken out of teacher retirement and left there. Um, we didn't do that this time. Our economy is not as bad, you know, it, it had a dip, but we still have a strong economy in the state. But what that shows me is the fact that, you know what, we have a 21st century economy, but a 1930s tax structure. And so that's where, you know, the things that Representative Osborne was talking about of trying to approve things is that we do need to look into how do we make these changes, how do we move forward. And so that I find very encouraging with what we're doing with the legislature, is that willingness to say, okay, let's evaluate how we're doing things. We don't always have to do things just because this is how we've always done. But we can start making those changes and actually start you know, making improvements for the state. To me, that's why I find encouraging is that question of no longer, you know, I've been sick the past few weeks. Um, and so, you know, you're standing there in a pharmacy and you have a question of do I want something that's fast acting or do I want something that's long lasting? And normally, you know, do I want to feel good now or do I want to feel better, feel good later? And so I think we're just highly in that movement, that mentality of we need to start planning on that aspect of how we feel good later. We want something that's long lasting. Not something that's just going to make us feel good and settle the problem right now. And that's where we're at, and I find that very encouraging as a state. I'll look for the drugs that are fast acting and long lasting. <laughs> 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 you know, the, uh, the, uh, when I read that question, and, and it, you know, it's, it's easy to get caught up in, in the negative things that are going on, but there really are a lot of really good things going on in this state. And uh, Representative Jordan talked about future retirement. That's something we just don't see every day, but but it is a big deal. All of our retirement systems are much better funded than they were 10 years ago. The current legislature put a lot of emphasis on that, and it needed to be done. Representative Osborne talked about leadership, and I think she's right. I think the leadership up there has really done a great job with kind of pointing us in the direction that we need to go in. 
But also, I mentioned earlier, there's 13 new freshmen in the Senate. There's, I think, 30-something in the House, 33 in the House. That's basically a third of the legislature's brand new this year. And, and that's kind of who, when you're a freshman there, and we kind of get treated like freshmen in high school. We're the new people. And, uh, and, uh, and so we're learning our way, but it is such a diverse group. But we all kind of ran on the same thing. We ran on, it's, it's not a time to dig our heels in the ground. And we all know it, talk our lungs and say that's conservatism. We ran on the fact that we need to govern. And I use that a lot in my campaign, I said it's time to govern. And that group is a group that is it's a time to govern. Um, I ran across some great people during the campaign. I saw Jack Ryan at the back, and I think one of the best conversations I had during the conference um, during my campaign was some things going on at, at Redlands. And things I've never heard of, never thought about. There's lots of innovation in the state. That's just one small example of what goes on. Lots of great leaders in the state and all different aspects of, the, of our economy. But when I look at this class and what's going to become the leadership of the state senate, the state house, in the years to come, um, I would say that, that we're basically loaded. There's a lot of great people from a lot of diverse backgrounds, and and I think I think I what you mentioned you know, the best things are yet to come, and I think that they are. I, I was having a conversation with a young man at a convenience store last week, and I knew he'd been out of a job. He was a blue collar oil field worker, lost his job back in 2016. And I said, Hey Chris, you ever had to find a job yet? And he goes, Yeah, I have a job. He goes, My kids have quit. And I said, how come? He goes, because I got a better job offer. And he's getting multiple job offers in the old industry now. That's, that's a big deal to us in this state. And, and we need to keep working harder to make sure that we continue to diversify our economy so we're not so reliant on the oil gas industry. Like you mentioned, the age of oil wars, because we're so reliant. We've diversified a lot, but we're not as reliant. So we are not as hit as hard as we were in the 80s, but we're still that hard in the old oil um, So we need to keep, continue to diversify. But, you know, what I appreciate is the people on this stage and the diversity that we have, the fact that we can come here and disagree on some issues, and we do disagree on them, but we're all friends. We all get along, and, and so um, I can feel pretty sure if, if Senator Lovins and I don't agree on the ESAs, he's not going to take it out on me on another bill later on. I think we're going to see what's he's, in fact, what he's in the bill and make it work. But I think the diversity of who we all are makes, makes, uh, makes a big part of uh, what makes us strong. Um, I'll end on this. Representative Jordan, um, early in my campaign, I was visiting with him, and, and we got talking about the presidential primaries, and somehow Russia came up in our conversations. And he had mentioned when he was in college, he uh, he had a couple of uh, elective credits left over, so he took he took Russian history. You know, that's the conversation. He talked about his Russian history. I kind of glazed over. That's kind of beyond my my abilities. Uh, <laughs> that, that's what he did. If I did the conversation after about ten minutes of telling me about Russian history. I said, well, when I was a senior in college, I also had two, two credit hours I could use. I did two hours of both of so, <laughs> so that's the first thing. If the Russians are coming, you want to know why, ask him. If you get him, you can't get him <laughs> Thank you all for having Thanks for having Thank you for joining us for this special edition of Mustang Open Mic. Please share this podcast with others. Tell them to go to iTunes and subscribe or go to Google Play or just go to Mustang Open Mic and subscribe there. Until next time, have a blessed day.